0: for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and takes away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away." you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i say to you love your enemies bless those who curse you do good to those who hate you uh, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven let's pray father i just pray uh... that you would make this word come alive in our hearts uh, this morning lord god and that um, Lord God, there's just been so many uh, different uh, interpretations of of these teachings, Lord God, these verses, Lord, and I just pray that by your Holy Spirit that you will guide us uh, into all truth this morning. And God, we don't want to miss what your Holy Spirit is doing uh, in our lives this morning. Do it through us, Lord, and I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, please greet one another. Okay, hey, before we start, I just want to um, call Greg up. Greg, can you please come up here? You're not in trouble, I promise <laughs> you. Um, many of you uh, know that uh, Greg is going to be graduating uh, this week, and uh, uh, you know it's it's been a long uh, road for him, and. Uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I, I really feel like Greg, uh, as much as anyone, uh, just typifies just the model of being a servant in the, in the church. He just does uh, so much behind the scenes and most importantly, I just have, have really seen him over the years, really seek the Lord and uh, individually in his, his quiet time and, and just how he reaches out to, to people Now how he just is, is a servant just to me and so I just wanted to give him I wanted to give him a present this morning. So, Greg, can you please close your eyes? And don't open them. Close your eyes. Okay? Now, close your eyes. Keep them closed. Okay, open your eyes. Greg, this is your guitar. <laughs> this is um, the church's guitar. It's now Greg's guitar. Uh, uh, it's a tailor. If those of you who know about guitars, they're, they, um, they're, they're the best. And uh, I just um, thought that uh, was the least of what we could uh, give you on your graduation, uh, Graduation, so congratulations. Oh, nice. <laughs> now I do not feel bad when I break strings. Huh? Right. Pray that the strings don't break. But uh, okay, well, we're going through... Uh, the most famous sermon ever given to any audience any congregation any group of people it's the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount uh, given by no other than none other than Jesus and you know one of the things that we have come back to repeatedly uh, and I think I really need to, to mention it uh, each week is that uh, the sermon is not going to make a whole lot of sense in fact it may be, uh... incredibly confusing it it may even uh... the sermon may even push you away from god rather than draw you to him if you don't read uh... really everything in the sermon in light of matthew five verse twenty uh... which as we've said uh, we've quoted many times where Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And to understand the magnitude um, of that, uh, I wanted to give a, just an illustration uh, this morning. If you can remember back to high school, and remember that quintessential student in high school that student who uh well they got they got straight A's but that was the least of, of of what they did i mean they were president of the class they were editor of the yearbook they were editor of the newspaper they were you know pre- president of the glee club i've never really figured out what the glee club does but i know that every high school has one they were uh sort of at the or organized all the school events the bake sales the prom the car washes and he just you know, that quintessential student, the student, and uh, think back to try to put yourself back in school, you know, in your class, and imagine that uh, you're the principal uh, calls everyone to the auditorium and then calls this this student up and sits to sit, uh, stand next to him and, and says, with a loud voice, announces to everyone in the auditorium, unless you are a better student, then this student right here. You by no means will graduate from this school. Can you imagine if that happened? I mean, you know, what are you talking about, principal? I, I'm never gonna be like this guy. Uh, he's not normal. He, You know, we were born in a hospital. He was born in the teacher's lounge. I, you know, you might as well tell us that uh, we're never gonna graduate. Well, it was no doubt a similar reaction when Jesus uh, said uh, in Matthew 5:20, in his sermon, "Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven." Now, what do you mean, Jesus? I mean, the Pharisees are the pillar of society. I mean, these guys live and breathe the law. They, 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 they. they all they, it's all they think about every uh, night and day, and and how can you expect our righteousness to exceed theirs? We're just common people. We we're just sort of eking out a, a living here. We we don't know a whole lot of the law, and the part of the law we know, we don't follow very well. Does Jesus back down? He never does. Instead, he goes on to describe a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the the Pharisees and and the scribes, and uh, a righteousness that that far exceeds uh, it. In fact, uh, a righteousness that was absolutely uh, unattainable. With this righteousness, there's not even a trace of anger. There's not even an inkling of lust. There is no... uh, There's not a bit of unforgiveness. And the climax is in Matthew, uh, verse... Uh, chapter 5 verse 48 where Jesus more or less says not only does your righteousness have to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes uh, You need to be perfect <coughs> is what he says And Matthew 5:48, therefore you shall be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect And you know as we've said throughout the study of the sermon um, all of this can have uh, only uh, really one of two effects in your life. Either you're going to be crushed under the most unimaginable burden of the law or you're going to fall at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, I have no hope for heaven other than in you. Jesus lived up to that unimaginably high standard. There was not a trace of anger, unforgiveness, or lusts in his heart and we are told that uh, that Jesus if we ask him in our life is that, that that we can be that righteousness and that we can live out this teaching this sermon his life in us you know the pa- the past uh, week I was down in Maryland and I went to a pastor's conference and about a thousand other men and During the conference, there are four or five pastors who just spoke from God's Word, and they were chosen to speak, not because they had big churches, but because just over years and years, they had just been tried and tested by the Lord. And I've gotten to know these men over the years not really personally but through their ministries and teaching and I just have as much respect for them as as any them in the world and so when they spoke I listened and for the most part so did everyone else and the theme um, really uh, of each one uh, that spoke and I don't know if they planned this or, or what I don't think they did but the theme was that pastors and the people of God, they need to get back to their first love, Jesus. That the church needs to quit its obsession about building a church and build a relationship with the one who is head of the church. That people need to quit their preoccupation with getting the right technology for the worship team, uh, right programs, right marriage seminars, singles programs, uh, Christian concerts, the latest methods of outreach and ministry, uh, and they need to turn back to their obsession, their preoccupation with the Lord Himself. There was a panel discussion of these pastors, and the subject of the panel was the state of the church, and one of the pastors uh, who i have particular respect for just began by saying i'm concerned i'm very concerned he started saying that that was the start of it and he you know in so many words he said i'm concerned about this focus of doing whatever is necessary just to keep everyone happy and you know the church today didn't get that focus from jesus Jesus was never concerned about those things. He, in fact, uh, when it got to the point uh, when he had large numbers of people, uh, he specifically and deliberately refused to give them what they wanted. In John chapter 6, there were large multitudes that ha- had started to follow Jesus, and they had been the beneficiary of the miracle of the fish and loaves. They, um, you know, five, ten thousand of them, it says there were five thousand men. But, there's more uh, people there and uh, they just continue to follow him after this miracle and pester him for food and uh, he, uh, they pestered him and pestered him and, and you know did he say well you know I really need to make these people happy you know I better give them some more food after all if, I, if they go away there's not going to be any more opportunity to talk to them about God I mean consider the lost opportunity. No, he didn't. He Instead, he said, I am the bread of life, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And it says at this point, the Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, you'd think if it happened today, uh, you'd, you'd probably see you know, the pastor calling a press conference or something and saying, well, look, you know, if I offended anyone, let me clarify here or um, retract or apologize, uh, this type of thing. But uh, Jesus doesn't do anything of the sort. He never does. Instead, he does the opposite. He presses on with all authority and says, most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in Me. And then when the people started freaking out over these words, He turned to them and says, Does this offend you? What then if you see the Son of Man go back to the place He was before? It is the Spirit who gives the life. The flesh flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are Spirit and they are life. And then it says from that point, Many of his disciples walked with him no more. Jesus' concern was not to keep the uh, church full. It was to keep his church abiding with him, seeking him, following him, to give them the truth. And he knew the only thing that was going to do that to with them it was not food, not barbecue, uh, not uh, uh, bread and fish, you know, not a perfect sound system, not uh, singles groups or overcomers groups, marriage seminars, just himself. And that is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's drawing people to a deeper life with Him. As He's describing a life that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, He is drawing people to a life with Him, abiding with Him. Verse 33, Jesus says, again, you have heard, uh, um, we're in chapter uh, 5 of Matthew now, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all. Uh, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is the footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever more than, is more than these, is from the evil one. That's pretty strong language. That's pretty strong language. You ask, what is going on here? Why is Jesus talking about this? I mean, he's talking about marriage, and then all of a sudden, uh, in the previous verse, and all of a sudden he starts talking about oaths. Very simple. Once again, the Jews had taken the Old Testament law, which permitted oaths, even ordered oaths, And over the years, they had stretched it to the point where they were belittling God, bringing bringing God into every foolish little commitment and promise that they made, breaking the commitments and promises once they made them. Uh, You know what I'm talking about. You hear it all the time. I swear to God, that was the best movie I ever saw. Oh, you know, I, I saw the mayor on Boston Common. No, you didn't. I did. I swear to God. Taking God off the throne and inserting him into our base expressions. Jesus says, leave God's name out of your commitments and let your yes be yes and your no be No. Now, some people read these verses, and again, you know, we've been through this before. They do precisely what Jesus tells them not to do. And in fact, they do exactly what the, basically the whole theme of the sermon is against. What they do is they make a code of law, and they read these verses, and they say, okay, this means I'll be uh, right before God, I'll be justified before God, as long as, you know, those two times in my life I'm in court, I don't take an oath. And as long as those two times in my whole life, uh, or else you know maybe they will become governor of a state and be sworn in, you know, you know the two times I'm in court and the one time I'm being sworn in as governor, I won't take an oath, and that way I'll be justified bu- uh, before God, and I can check off this uh, little box. And they think, wow, you know, some of those other, some of this other stuff Jesus is saying is pretty hard. I mean, that you know, turn your cheek stuff's hard. This one, uh, it's pretty easy. It only comes up a few times in 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 life, but uh, those are the same uh, people who, uh, in Matthew 5.22, where Jesus says, whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire, those are the same people who feel justified just by not saying those words, you fool, and meanwhile, all kinds of gunk uh, is in their mind, and and, uh, never mind uh, uh, that there may be all kinds of stuff in their thought life, as long as they don't say, you fool, they are okay. Uh, and as long as uh, the two times during their entire life they they are in court, they they don't say enough. They're off the hook. That's crazy. That's that's crazy. That that is the they're missing the whole point. Once again, Jesus is getting to the heart here. He's getting to the heart. Again, it says, um, after, in verse 33, um, a- Again, you have heard that it was said of, of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oath to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is His footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. Jesus is rebuking the heart that belittles God, that has no reverence or fear of God, that is constantly breaking promises to God that lies and exaggerates is he prohibiting Osir again no it is so important to interpret scripture with scripture if you look Throughout Scripture, there are many times where oaths are permitted, even ordered. In the Mosaic Law, the priests were ordered to put people under oath. Abraham made an oath. Joseph made an oath. David made an oath. Paul made an oath. Jesus Christ himself allowed allowed himself to be put under oath before the high priest. Remember in... um, Remember in Matthew 5:17, Jesus said He did not come to do away with the law, not one jot or tittle. So He's not doing away with uh, with oaths where the context is an extremely grave and serious situation. He, what He's doing, He's rebuking the the heart of the Pharisees and our own heart today, of the practice of belittling the name of God as if God were our own little lucky charm. Jesus saying, don't swear to God, swear to God this, swear to God that. He's God, don't trivialize him. You know, bow down to him, uh, uh, worship him, uh, lift up your hands and pray to him, talk to him whenever you want, but, but don't add his name to your four-letter words. Again, he ends in verse 37, But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. When Jesus was saying in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life, unless you eat of my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no life in you. This is the very type of thing he's talking about. You're treating God as a common thing. Stop that. Go deep into your relationship with me. Put aside these notions um, of God that, are, that are, are trivial and base and, and common and, and go deep into the, to the holiness, the holy heart of God. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And I believe today, at least in our country, that these are probably the most neglected verses in all the Bible. If a pastor preaches about Christians standing up for their rights, he will get a loud, noisy audience applauding his every word. If a pastor preaches on these verses, he's likely to attempt to explain them away. Well, obviously, Jesus is not saying you just have to let everyone walk all over you. Oh, really? One of the words for humility in the New Testament is a Greek compound word combining the word carpet with the word walk on. Sorry to ruin your day, but um, that is precisely what he's teaching here. The tragedy of these verses being ignored is that, again, in my opinion, these verses have probably been responsible for bringing more people to Jesus Christ than any other verses in the Bible. The supreme example, Jesus Christ. He did not resist the evil that came to him. When they slapped him on one cheek, he offered them the other. And he didn't stop there. He offered them his beard, which they ripped out, his back, which they scourged, his head, which they punctured with thorns, his hands, his feet, and side they pierced. And the Bible says that when Jesus was lifted up, the whole world was drawn to him. Why? They could see the wounds, they could see the stripes, they could see the piercing, and each one of them spoke about a love that they had never seen before and for 2,000 years people have been drawn to that love the early church followed in Jesus' footsteps. We read in Acts 8, verse 3, how the Jewish authorities broke into Christian houses and dragged men and women off to prison. And in obedience to Matthew 5:39, they didn't resist. They didn't form Christian militias. Uh, they didn't uh, uh, file lawsuits. They obeyed Jesus' example and his words. When the church spread as a result of that to, for example, Rome, the Roman authorities uh, took up the persecution of the church. Uh, Christians who refused to worship Caesar, the king, were dragged into the Colosseum. They were eaten alive, no resistance. They were following in the footsteps of the Lord, and so on and so forth. Last night I was reading Fox's Book of Martyrs, and uh, just all the Christians who were burned at the stake uh, throughout the Middle Ages and always going peacefully willingly without any resistance and they were burned in uh, the town and towns and villages uh, uh, throughout Europe uh, so that uh, when the people saw them being burned they wouldn't do the same thing they wouldn't try to read the Bible they wouldn't try to tell someone um, how they must be born again they wouldn't give sanctuary to someone who did well in fact it had the opposite effect it brought people to Christ. And this continues to this day. When I was at the pastor's conference, K.P. Yohannan spoke. He's the head of Gospel for Asia. And, you know, you can listen to K.P. speak for hours about, uh, you know, uh, killings and maimings and rapes and stuff all throughout the 1040 window that in fiercely uh, Muslim and Hindu uh, uh, countries and, uh, and, and, you would think that that would sort of wipe out the church. Instead, they have established 21,000 churches over the last 20 years. And so with that as our backdrop, what a travesty it is that in our country, where people don't even get killed for their faith, that pastors and preachers try to explain away these verses. They say that Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. Hyperbole, they say. What Jesus is really saying here, you you really, 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 really got to love people. I mean, really. But of course, you don't let them walk all over you. You wouldn't want to do that. You know, and, and so that would hurt. I mean, you, you you know, you allow someone to slap your other cheek. I mean, that would hurt. You know, but but what they're doing is they're emptying words, uh, the words of Jesus of his power. They're rejecting the example of two thousand years of history. The tragedy is that uh, there are so many people who pray for revival, but they're unwilling to follow the very plain reading of Jesus' words. Well, let's bring these verses to our neighborhoods here in Boston. Again, it says, I tell you, verse 39, do not resist an evil person. Do not resist an evil person. Verse 44, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. I, You know, you may not... Uh, be in a situation where you're dragged in front of an Inquisition panel uh, and be given a choice of whether to die or reject your faith. Although who knows, you know, maybe that, maybe that's coming soon. But you may get something short of that. I was reading last night of. Uh, uh, a story about this guy named Billy Bray, who was a 19th century professional boxer who lived in England. And the story could just as well have happened today. Now, uh, pro- professional boxing in uh, England in the 19th century, they didn't hold it at the Madison Square Garden. They held it in bars and pubs and, and, uh, and uh, you know, when the boxer knocked out his opponent, there was a good chance that he'd knock out a few spectators after as well. And, you know, boxing then wasn't, uh, wasn't, like today, boxing's like for wimps, right? I mean, they have 15 rounds. Then they would go as many rounds as it took for the person to basically lie unconscious on the, you know, on the floor. I mean, that's real boxing, right? Well, this Billy Bray guy, who was a, a professional boxer, and he was radically converted to Christ. And he was down in the tin mine where he worked, and one of his co-workers, who hated him because he basically lived in terror of this guy, uh, who knew he had been converted to Christ, who... What he did is he decided to take advantage of the fact that he knew the guy was now a Christian. So, without any provocation whatsoever, he just slugged him. Can you imagine finding out that Mike Tyson was saved and just walking up to him and just going, you know, he's going to have to take it, you know, can you imagine that? Well, that's what this guy did. He went up to Billy Bray and he slugged him, and Billy Bray could have flattened him. He was renowned as, as, as a good boxer, but instead he looked at him and he said, may God forgive you even as I forgive you. And the man was saved a few days later. You may not be threatened with death, but if you're living out your faith, people will deliberately provoke you because of your faith. They will test you. They will tempt you to break your peace. You now this week, uh, I bought you know a couple of those little fish things that you put on the back of your car. You know those things, those Christian symbols. It was the sign of the early church, actually in Rome. Uh, is where they started using that as a sign uh, that uh, you were born again, and uh, my daughter Adelaide put one on the back of the car, Unfortunately, she put it on crooked, so now I have a fish that 's kind of swimming upward uh, i 'm sure she started a trend watch you you 'll pretty soon everyone will start like putting those things like that but but anyway um, you 've seen the fish with the little Darwin inside. They put the little fish and then the words Darwin inside of them, or otherwise there's a fish with a little with a little um, feet on it, you know, crawling out, you know, evolution crawling out of the ocean. Or my favorite uh, bumper sticker is, um, God protect me from your people. Or hate is not a family value. What is the purpose of these bumper stickers? It's to provoke you. It's to send you into a fit of rage. It's to demean you. It's to insult you. And, uh, but what are you going to do the next time someone waves one of these in your face? Are you going to rip it away from them and like, start stamping on it? Uh, it or are you going to then give them a little sermon about how they're going to uh, burn in hell? Uh, or are you going to follow the example of Jesus in 2,000 years of examples of saints who have gone to their grave obeying his words, do not resist an evil person? We have a bunch of guys going out on Saturday nights telling people about Jesus. And a few Saturdays ago, uh, Mike McMillan was talking to some folks and some woman overheard the conversation from inside her house and she opened up her window and started harassing them. And she turned to Mike and said, if you're such a Christian, why do you have those tattoos all over you? Doesn't the Bible say something about self-mutilation? And... The Bible, by the way, has a a perfectly reasonable response to that. But but, uh, how do you respond respond to her? Uh, You know, you need a tattoo of a demon right on your face right now is what you need. You know, I'll put it there. Or do you let the insult, the accusation, blow right past you? Again, it says, In Matthew 39, it says, Do not resist an evil person. And verse 44, Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Inevitably, there's the question, Steve, how far do you take all this stuff? I mean, how far do you take it? I mean, if someone's at work, for example, and I know he's stealing, do I just not resist evil and let him steal? If I hire a plumber, and the plumber promises to be at my house by the end of the day, and they don't show up, then they call say, so I'll be there tomorrow, and they don't show up the next day, or the next day, or the next day. Do I just sit around my house, my stinky house, with my uh, toilets clogged up, you know, wait for this guy to come. I'm resisting evil. This is really getting evil around here, you know. Uh, do, do, is that what I do? How about if someone's beating up my kid or my neighbor? Do I resist evil and let them go ahead? How about all the terrorists hiding in this country? Uh, do we just let them over on the country and blow us all up? No, 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 and no. So where are you drawing a line? Actually, it's a lot simpler than You might think, again, when you read Scripture, you must compare it with other Scripture. What Jesus is saying here governs only one thing, your personal relationships and interactions with people. Otherwise, what Jesus is saying will contradict other areas of Scripture, and Jesus has told us in Matthew 5.17, He's not going to do that. So, what Jesus is saying here governs only one thing, your personal relationships and interactions with the world. That means there are at least three areas where uh, that Jesus, uh, what He's saying here uh, in Matthew 5.39, do not resist evil, is not going to govern. It's not going to govern your business relationships, like when you, you, you catch someone stealing from your company, uh, or when you hire a plumber. The, the Bible has a lot to say about honoring your employer, and, and, and it also has to say about, for example, the rights when you enter into contracts. Exodus chapter 22 talks about the rights and responsibilities of those who are uh, safekeepers of property. So, you know, when, when you hire a plumber, uh, let me tell you, the plumber's not going to get any closer to Christ uh, by you sitting around for months in a stinky house waiting for him to come. You know, that, that's not going to happen. What Jesus is saying in Matthew 5.39 does not govern your responsibilities as a father or mother or as a guardian of your neighbor. If your son or daughter, neighbor, or friend is attacked, the Bible says you have a responsibility to come to their aid. Genesis 4.9, you are your brother's keeper. What Jesus is saying certainly doesn't govern a nation's responsibilities for its citizens. The Bible is filled with examples of, of God's taking up arms, God's people taking up arms to defend themselves. Case in point, Gideon and the Midianites. Jesus is talking exclusively about personal reactions between you and the world, injuries and insults to your person, you don't resist them. And again, why why is it that he's asking us to do that? And the reason is this: just like the cross, where where, where when the Bible says when Jesus is lifted up, the whole world is drawn to him. People's unbelief is, is, is shaken when they see that kind of love. It's, it's arrested, it's disruptive, it's broken down. Their unbelief in, in something better, something uh, greater, something, a, a creator, uh, their unbelief in that is, is shaken when they see God working in that way in your life. And and this is all getting back to what Jesus was saying in John 6. I am the bread of life. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will have no life in me. When we are resisting evil, as hard as it may be. And and again, you know, when I teach on stuff like this, I I, I feel so inadequate. Because believe me, I'm far from being there. But when I do resist evil by the power of God, I'm able to do that. Let me tell you, there is a, a communion and fellowship with Jesus that is, that is unmatchable when we're just obeying His words. And, and Paul says that, you know, he prays that, that in, in Philippians, he's prays that he would, he would know Christ in his sufferings. Well, let me tell you, when you are in that situation where you're resisting that evil or you're not resisting you're not resisting the evil there's a Fellowship, you know, with Christ, He's there with you as 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 strongly uh, and, and as close as He could ever be. That's sort of the knowledge of His presence, and 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 that's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. It's it's drawing us. Jesus is drawing us closer in uh, to Him. Could we ever do it in our own strength? No. And that's why we're, we we just sort of. Uh, seek after Him and and pursue Him in this life. Now I don't want to oversimplify any of this. There will be... uh, You'll find yourself in situations that don't fall neatly into any of the categories I presented, and you know, you just have to... That's why we always have to be in prayer and and for discernment uh, of what to do in these various situations. You know, when do I do something about the situation that I'm in, or, or when do I literally be like a carpet that is walked over. I mean, that's uh, we got to constantly be in, in prayer with the Lord. Otherwise, we're going to be clueless when it comes down to it with stuff like this. But God will give you the power to be like Jesus has commanded here. He didn't promise us anything that He didn't give us the power to do. I was um, just reading this morning in 1 uh, Corinthians 1. Uh, chapter 1 verse uh, 30 it says but of him talking of the Lord you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written he who glories let him glory in the Lord you know we are in Christ Jesus it says, you are in Christ Jesus sanctification of God or from God that means that word sanctification um, all that means is this very t- kind of thing that we were talking about this morning it's not resisting evil it's turning the other cheek it's blessing those who who curse you and it, it's just a promise here that we can uh, live this life and in this life we'll be able to to be drawn near to him and be fruitful to him like we've never been able to uh, before if, if we're really honest and sincere see her before the Lord and, and and seek him to to live a life like this so anyway we'll close there and uh, we will continue in Matthew chapter 5 next week let's pray father we just thank you for your word and I just pray father for that you would fill us with with power through your spirit in our inner man that Christ would dwell in our hearts faith, Lord. Lord, we we read the words of Jesus sometimes, Lord, and, and we just feel so inadequate, so feeble, so powerless, and Lord, we just ask for your touch this morning, God, not only to love the world, but to love each other. Not only to love the obnoxious, but to love the people who are closest to us, Lord. God, draw us into your word. We love you, Lord, and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, anyone who needs prayer, please come up. God bless you.